This is episode 63 of Cinescope. And come along, kitty winkies. Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Gene Gosworth to talk about one of our favorite films, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Gene, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing terrific. How are you, Chad? I am doing all right. I am excited to talk about this longtime favorite musical film of mine. Uh, If I recall, we just sort of stumbled upon the same conversation on Facebook and both iterated our love for this movie. And so here we are. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to be able to talk to talk about it. It's one that a lot of people maybe kind of forget about sort of in Dick Van Dyke's um, long list of, of movies and TV shows. This kind of gets lost in the shuffle, but it's a really pretty solid musical. I think I'm happy to talk about it. Me too. Um, now, you were last on for our Toy Story 3 episode, so it's been a long time. Um, mm-hmm. So how about you reintroduce yourself, tell people who you are, what you do, and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm Gene Gosworth, as Chad said. I primarily do some writing and podcasting for A Clear Lens. Uh, clearlens.org is the website. That's a Christian apologetics and worldview website. We have a bi-weekly podcast. There's articles out every every uh, once or twice a week. Uh, I also do some work with Real World Theology. That's a uh, Christian um, uh, movie review website. And uh, we have a podcast there as well. Mikey Fissel runs that, and we get reviews and commentary out almost every day. Um, so I'm pretty active in kind of the blogging world. Um, that's pretty much where you can find me on clearlens.org or realworldtheology.com. Yes, I I found you through Real World, and uh, I have listened to an episode or two of Clearlens, and we'll definitely be checking it out more. Uh, But definitely go check those places out if you want more of Gene. I was just glad that I remembered how to pronounce your last name. (laughs) Didn't have to remember, didn't have to ask. Uh, So Well done. Thank you. Well, I'm ready to just jump into our discussion if you are. How about it? Let's do it. Okay, so once again, we are talking about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. It was released on December 16th of 1968 and was directed by Ken Hughes, who also directed films such as Heat Wave, The Trials of Oscar Wells, and Cromwell. The script was written by, this is interesting, Roald Dahl, best known as the children's author of stories like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, James and the Giant Peach, Twitches, all those kinds of things, written by Roald Dahl, as well as Ken Hughes, and is based on the 1964 book Chitty Chitty Bang Bang by Ian Fleming, who uh, created the character of James Bond. So some <laughs> yeah. interesting writing credits attributed to this film. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, if you look at Ian Fleming's um, lists of of things he's been involved in, you see a whole bunch of James Bond stuff and then kind of plucked right in there in the middle is Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So uh, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit, but definitely an interesting pairing of of screenplay writers and and novel writers inspiring this story. 
And worth noting as well that the film is produced by Albert R. Broccoli, who is a co-producer of the original James Bond films. So Mm -hmm. uh, crossover there. They're definitely attached to Ian Fleming in some way. The music is by Richard and Robert Sherman, i.e. the Sherman Brothers, who are mostly attached to Disney films such as The Parent Trap, The Sword in the Stone, Mary Poppins, The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, The Tigger Movie, and countless other songs for Disney itself such as zippity doo and It's a Small World. The movie stars Dick Van Dyke, Sally Ann Howes, Adrian Hall, Heather, Heather Ripley, Lionel Jeffries, Gert Froba, Anna Quayle, Benny Hill, and Robert Heltman. So, Gene, what was your first experience that you remember with this movie? This movie is one of the many films that gets lumped together in my experience as those movies my mom introduced me to. I don't know if anyone else around the 30-ish age range has this experience, but when I was growing up between the ages of maybe 6 and 16 or something, my mom kind of had a revolving uh, list of movies that she was always playing on the TV. Uh, She had recorded on VHS, and we were always watching them. Movies like Pete's Dragon or Mary Poppins, a lot of these movies that you uh, discussed that Richard and Robert Sherman were involved in. Uh, Some movies that Roald Dahl had written, either the novel inspired for the film or the, the screenplay for. A lot of Disney movies, and this is lumped in there with those i don't remember the exact first time i saw the movie but i imagine it had to be sometime around the age of eight or nine or ten and uh i really really enjoyed it it's it's specifically targeted to that age of audience and there are a number of ways in which it works for that age and uh i just fell in love right away and it it fits very nicely in that group of movies that my mom introduced me to You know, I never really thought of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as a kid's movie, maybe because I was a kid when I first watched it and it was just a movie. Um, Mm, Yeah. But it was the musical film of my childhood. Uh, I don't remember a specific first time watching it. I don't remember an age when I would have watched it. All I know is that I have always watched this movie. My grandparents owned it on VHS and I watched it all the time when I was over at their place. And it, it made me... How do I say it? Unreasonably nostalgic while watching the movie tonight. (laughs) And I wiped away a few more tears than I would like to admit, just because it took me back so well to that age and to those times when this was the movie that I watched. It Uh was never like a movie I watched on repeat, but I watched it many, many times as I was a kid. And it was just so important to me and is so important to me because of the imagination of it, the music of it, and just the fun of it, to be honest. It's a fun movie. I had a great time watching it tonight for the first time in probably seven and a half, almost eight years. Yeah, I think the word fun is a pretty apt description of it. Um, I, Within the last two years, maybe maybe within the last year, I introduced this movie to my children. My kids are, right now, they're nine, seven, and four. Um, there, there are a lot of things that you don't just, re, you, know, you don't recall. You know, there are always, you remember the good things about movies that you saw when you were a kid. <laughs> you don't always remember the, the weird moments or the, the long, awkward moments. For, for example, this was one of a number of movies released at the time that had very, very long opening credits. 
And in this movie in particular, it's got a long stretch of just race car footage, like from the very early 1900s. And when I'm introducing my kids to this for the first time, I remember thinking, boy, this is a long stretch. I don't remember this. I'm getting bored myself. I can't imagine how the kids are. (laughs) But it's one of those things where all of the fun moments in the movie kind of overshadow those sort of dull moments, I guess, as you're viewing as an adult now, and you completely forgot about when you saw it as a kid. Uh, But the fun moments really, really take the cake. Uh, And we'll get into a few of them as well. Um, But I know that when I watch it again now, even as an adult, I can still remember that feeling when I'm a kid of listening to Toot Sweets for the first time or listening to the kind of the the titular song, uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and just getting that, like you said, that sense of nostalgia back again and just really feeling like I'm having fun watching this movie. The reason I knew that the last time I watched this was seven, eight years ago is because my freshman year of college, I was in a stage production of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And oh, wow. I somehow convinced the, da- uh, the the director that I could dance. And so I was a dancer on stage. <laughs> uh, don't want to talk about that too much. <laughs> oh, no, but, no, uh, we should totally talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great time. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh we did basically the exact choreography from Meal Bamboo. Uh, which oh, yeah, yeah. Is just as much fun to dance to as you would expect, um, but also exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was an inventor, so singing The Roses of Success, and I uh, did the, the the whole dancing during Toot Suites, and oh, it, was a, it was a fun time. It was the last theater production I was actually in on stage, um, and... So it's been that long since I watched the movie and it was just, it brought back memories of that experience as well and memories Mm -hmm. of my childhood at the same time. And so I just had a blast watching tonight. Now let's just talk about what in the story, whether it's dance numbers or uh, the story itself or sets or whatever it is, what, what in this movie really stands out to you and makes you like it a lot? You know, I like I like the nod to adventurism and invention that's in the story. Um, we'll get into some more character details for Dick Van Dyke's character in a moment, but the fact that he's an inventor and you see that playing kind of a primary role throughout the film, that it, it really becomes a predominant part of the plot, the fact that he's an inventor, and that starts to kind of shape who he is and and things that he experiences. I really like seeing all of his inventions from the very moment we are introduced to him. We see him trying to fly off in a rocket suit of some sort. Um, I like the sense of imagination that's in the story as well. Uh, Not only that a lot of the movie actually is just imaginary, but that that's done by this man who is an inventor, and he's really kind of going for it all. He's really engaging his mind when he tells all of these stories. Um, I really liked um, the involvement of kind of all of the dance and things into the musical numbers. It wasn't just people singing about how they feel. You know, it wasn't just people singing about certain plot elements. It was really almost like a, a stage performance on screen. People going all throughout the, the, the set and going really 
these big musical numbers and like you described really having to have a a major ability to dance and, and have some big time athleticism uh going into that um i like the all of those elements about the story and those kinds of things really go towards making it a fun movie i think the dance numbers are definitely a highlight, mostly in the first half where those take place, where you have Toot Sweets and you have Me Old Bamboo. Um, uh-huh. Toot Sweets, uh, it really stands out to me as one of those highlights early in the film because he is trying to get the attention of Lord Scrumptious and he's trying to win him over and say, listen, just try my candy. You'll like it. It's really cool. It's a lot of fun. And he's being uh, just ignored. And so he turns to song to drive the point home. So it's, mm-hmm. it's this isn't working. Time to throw in the big guns. Song and dance number. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's automatically right into don't waste your pucker on some all day sucker. And it, it transitions into that. And then slowly he's winning over like one by one people in the staff and truly is helping along. And I love how the 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 toot sweets themselves are uh, integrated into the song and the choreography. And it, it's... It's so cool. It's a cool scene. And I was smiling the whole time while watching it. It's uh, such a colorful part of the movie. And it really sets the stage pretty early on. It's probably in the, within the first half hour of the film that we get that song and dance number. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I'm I'm trying to think. One, one of the things that struck me as I was watching the movie is that for a musical, the first musical number doesn't occur until pretty well into the film i mean i'm trying to recall correct me if i'm wrong i think two sweets is the first musical number in in the movie am i am i right about that we have you too but it's not a song and dance number right he's singing to his mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. yeah so but that's the first kind of big thing it's really the first one that kind of lets you know what kind of movie you're watching i think right you you know what you're in for after you see that scene and there are so many musicals nowadays that kind of lead with that, right? The very first scene is is a big song and dance number, or it's a big uh, uh, belting song. It's laying out the whole plot for you. It's it's telling you about these characters right at the get go. Um, I mean, this is one when I saw Frozen for the first time, the, the Disney film. Uh, the very first scene is is a musical number, and and I remember thinking, boy, I didn't know this was a musical. And that that was the scene that really got me, you know, straightened out to know what I'm watching. But in this movie, it's 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 well into the film. It's probably the 15 minutes in until we get the first musical number, uh, and it really does set the tone for the rest of the movie. I think, and and we get a couple other of those big, you know, dancing musical numbers, but we get a couple other kind of somber moments too it's not too long after this that uh he sings hushabye mountain to his children and i don't know if you got this feeling or not chad but when i watched that scene i was really getting an air of mary poppins and the um feed the birds song i don't know if it was the the notes that the song was hitting on or what it was um maybe just having Dick Van Dyke singing it and kind of hitting on some of the tones that he was hitting on to Mary Poppins. I don't know what it was, but I I was really getting a big sense of that. And that's a very somber song. It's not this big over the top production kind of thing, as you see in a lot of these other ones. So there's some highs and some lows there as far as emotional range. 
Um, so, but yeah, that two, the two sweets, uh, scene in particular is a whole lot of fun. I like the comparison to the Mary Poppins music. In fact, when I auditioned for the stage version that I was in, I sang a snippet from, uh, Chim Chim Cheree, um, mm-hmm. which is sung by Dick Van Dyke, written by mm-hmm. the Sherman brothers. And it, it very much feels like a slice out of the same whole, uh, both Chim Chim Cheree and, Hushabaya Mountain and Feed the Birds for that matter. They they all fit the same sort of mold. And I like that. I like that there's sort mm-hmm. of a, a continuity there. And uh man, Dick Van Dyke, I think this is some of his best singing. I think this is some of his best dancing and his best acting. I think um, you know, I haven't explored the whole gamut of Dick Van Dyke roles, but what I've seen, I think Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is probably my favorite of his. Oh yeah? Yeah. Um again, I'd have to dive deeper into his filmography to make a definitive statement this is his best but of what i've seen this is my favorite and part of that is because of how rooted in my childhood this story is Mm -hmm. and you know aside from the music and the stage production of it all the crux of the story that i just really love is that it's a father who sets out to do something beyond his means for his children and he does what he can basically to buy what is their imagination mobile. It's just this heap of trash that's sitting in a dump and they have fun with it. And so he does what he can to get it for them. And then he fixes it up for them. And then the whole rest of the film, the latter chunk is supposedly a story where he's just telling this, this fantasy of this Baron Bomberst who is evil and his wife hates children and he wants to steal the car and they kidnap grandpa and all this is a story. But then you almost have these, uh, you could almost argue that parts of it aren't story, right? Because right. Um, the there, there's lots of character development that happens between uh, Caractacus and Truly during the story itself that doesn't seem like something he would tell as a story. Um, and there's just a lot, the, the, the fact that the car takes flight at the end of the film <laughs> uh, <laughs> adds a big sort of question mark on everything. And I, I like to yeah, imagine, you know, as a kid, I, I think I probably assumed that it was all really actually happening within the story. And as an adult, I like to think that it still is, even though the logical part, even though there is the haze that sort of happens as he starts telling the story, indicating that they're entering a story. Yeah. There's too much that happens later that sort of cancels that out in my mind. And it's just, it almost brings back vibes of the love bug Herbie. Um, (laughs) And I looked to see if this might've been inspired by that in any way, but that actually came out after this did by a week they came out they both released in december of 1968 so there there wasn't oh, too much crossover there uh but yeah I, I love the the debate i suppose it's not like people are having discussions about this online all the time <laughs> yeah. but i love the the inner debate i have over whether or not this is real or whether it's just fantasy and i think it's fun to toy with that yeah that goes to towards identifying what kind of genre to place this in because it's definitely kind of adventure fantasy um and you start to there's there's a point in the film where you you're kind of settled on the fact that okay that was all just a story and none of it actually happened but in telling the story um van dyke's character potts learns things about himself and maybe about his kids or about truly 
Um, Cause he's, he, I get the sense at least that as he's telling the story, he's kind of interacting with them and uh, they're, they're giving him, you know, bits and pieces of, of, of what they say happens or how they react or whatever. But then when it comes to the end where it seems like, Oh, that's definitely a story. They're leaving the beach now that they were on where he was telling the story from the beginning. And then now going back to their homes. But then, like you mentioned, when the car takes flight at the end and he's describing how you need to be pragmatic and you need to do the logical thing and, and approach things uh, rationally and all this thing, but the car takes flight. And I think it starts to fall into kind of a magical realism sort of genre where, okay, some of this could have actually happened and maybe it actually did. Is this, are our characters realizing that they're flying now or is this something that we're just supposed to be left with this impression of? So there's some uncertainty there and, and it's kind of interesting to to discuss where that uncertainty falls and what maybe actually was just a story and what actually did happen to him. Um, because there's definitely a break within the story he's telling of where it seems like he's done and they go on about their day, but then elements of the story continue and it kind of pulls them back in. Um, when we get into kind of some character moments, I'd love to kind of dive into what that story means for Potts and him as a character. But uh, as far as the plot itself goes, it's a really cool um, subcontext to the overall thing of what's going on with Potts and his family and of what they need, you know. Um, the, the novel that um, Ian Fleming wrote originally, I think, was a little, maybe a little darker in terms of his past, Potts' past. I, I believe I remember reading where the the novel actually mentions that he's having a lot of trouble dealing with the death of his wife. And the movie never actually addresses that specifically. Uh, he does say, you know, they, they need a mother around, that kind of thing. And that's kind of the whole point of the relationship of he and Truly. But uh, the movie never really addresses those kinds of things. And I think it could have, but I think if it did, you you get a little more into the the serious nature of dealing with grief and that's not really what the movie's going for right it's it's a fun kids movie and can't get too serious about those things right i mean it's it's about a dad who's trying to do what he can for his kids and questioning whether he's doing everything he can whether this is a career path that he should continue pursuing or whether he should get a uh, uh for lack of a better word real world job <laughs> mm -hmm. um and then everything starts to sort of align a little bit and then truly enters the picture and it becomes about, well, maybe they need something more. They need more than I can offer them. Whether I get a real job or not, whether I'm successful as an inventor or not, whether I'm a good dad or not, they need something mm -hmm. else. And that gets a little bit more into character stuff too. And I'm actually ready to sort of dive into that if you are. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, then let's just start about Caractacus. Um, I adore him as a father. <laughs> he is the best father, and he just wants the best for his kids. He is <laughs> so great at the beginning of the film. He's an independent spirit, and it's like he knows what he wants his children to be. He knows what he needs to teach them to become that. And uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, everybody else just leave me alone. I got this. You really get that sense, especially when Truly begins interacting with him, 
about um you know she doesn't really ever call him call him out i don't think for what he's teaching his kids but she kind of drops some hints here and there about you know what are your kids doing that kind of thing and and he's very adamant about the way he's raising them he's raising them to be independent spirits just like him he's raising them to uh learn things on their own and and be adventurous like he is and he he's a very he's a cool dad right he's that kind of dad that we all kind of see in our friends' dads, and we're like, man, I wish my dad did this or that or that. <laughs> I wish my dad invented a flying car, and I wish my dad could sing and dance like that and all that kind of stuff. Um, he does have he does have a lot of responsibilities on his plate, and there comes a point in the movie where I think he begins to feel like he's not enough. And I think we start to see it at the point when his children ask him to buy the car. They ask him to buy Chitty. And he just doesn't have the money because all of his inventions are, fa- are failures, right? Everything that he creates uh, doesn't work correctly. He can't sell it. He can't make any money off of it. And he continues to try and try and try to invent things, but nothing ever really pans out. And the one time where he does, make enough money to buy this car for them. It's not because of his inventions. It's because of the generosity of people around him after he does the uh, musical number at the fair, right? After one of his inventions completely messes up this guy's hair <laughs> and he's running <laughs> from him, which is which is a really... And this goes to a compliment I want to give Dick Van Dyke. That guy is one of the maybe better athletic actors in the last 50, 60, 70 years. And this movie needs to be exhibit A to, towards that argument because between the musical number for Two Sweets and then the number, all the dancing that he had to do uh, for the song at the fair, I'm spacing on the name of that song. Neil Bamboo. Neil Bamboo. <laughs> That's a, there's a lot of, of physical requirements to do all that. And if you just watch all the steps he's making, the quick movements of his feet, that guy is an athlete, and it's on full display in those musical numbers. So, anyways, but it's at that moment where he where he actually gets enough money out of people genero- people's generosity, giving him tips and stuff after that song and dance, that he can actually buy that car and and you kind of see it on his face where he kind of realizes, you know, this is maybe what has to happen. Maybe he just is a performer and not necessarily an inventor. And he's swallowing a little bit of pride, I think, to take that money. Um, but he uses it to, to for something for his children. And I think when you contrast that, the way that I think he clearly feels towards his ability to provide for his children, he's starting to feel like he can't provide them all the things that they need. He can teach them whatever he wants. He can He can raise them to be good people. But maybe he he's not quite cutting it in terms of what they need. I think that kind of outlook on how he views himself really shades the story that he tells when it comes to them being on the beach with Truly. Because in that story, if we think about the role that he plays in that story, he's the savior. The things that he creates uh, work perfectly. Chitty Bang Bang is, you know, always coming in and saving the family. Uh, he 
he devises this plot to free them from Bulgaria and from the child napper, and everything works exactly as planned, which is not what happens for him in real life. His plans don't pan out. The inventions he creates don't work correctly. Uh, so this story really is a a story about the kind of dad that he wants to be. He wants to be the dad that can give them what they need, but it's just not happening. And it's not until, I think, in the story we realize where he and Truly actually come together and work together uh, that the picture, or the family, so to speak, is complete. And everything works well because they're all working together as kind of a unit, as a family. So I think that there's a lot of really interesting character things for Potts uh, in this film that we can really break down and, and look at fatherhood, I think, especially. And see what is it that fathers or even just pots in general feels like he can do, but then has to face the fact of things that he can't do for his children and how the story that he tells uh, puts him in a place where he can perform those things. Although now he he's needing a mate in order to, to be able to do that. Right. I mean, if you look at his inventions, he's got a lot of almosts, the otherwise tasty candies that have holes in them the breakfast machine that only serves three out of four properly cooked, the mm -hmm. haircut machine that only cuts some of the hair. He's on the cusp of creating television, or at least he's trying to. Um, it's some, there's something to be said that his first true victory in something in creating something that, uh, sorry, there's something to be said in him creating something that he created specifically for his kids not to try yeah. and create a career out of anything, but his first huge success that is created to be a success, not an accidental one like Toot Sweets, is mm -hmm. Chitty. Because he went out, he pursued the money for his kids, he bought the car for his kids, and then he fixed it for his kids, purely for that, not for anything else, not for any sort of personal gain, except for, I guess, the pride of being a good father. But that's not why he does it. He does it for Jemima and Jeremy. And yep. when it truly comes in and first questions him about whether he's a good father or not, whether they should be in school, whether they should be running out in the middle of the road. And then his father even says, you know, it's time to, to hang up the tools. It's time to go out and get honest work. I was, uh, I, I shine shoes for a living in the army and I did that for years and it was an honest living and he's trying to get his son to do something similar, even though they're clearly cut from the same cloth. They are both very eccentric in their own ways. He, uh -huh. he has some honest truth about him. It's time we've tried this. It's been going on for a while. Don't know what happened to the mother in the picture, but she's gone. You are all they've got. And it is time to essentially grow up. And, yeah. uh, all of these things add to his doubt, his almost, his uh, doubt from truly, his doubt from his father, his failures overall. But Chitty is a success. Truly comes into their life. She, he, he starts to see how she cares for the kids and how lovely she is as a person. And thankfully, eventually, he does fall for her. And uh, she becomes an encourager for him. Uh, towards the end of the film it, it's just a it's a nice build of that relationship i think 
where they are sort of antagonistic towards each other at first, but they they see the worst in each other at first, and then slowly, as they spend time with each other, see the best. And I think that's right. really cool. Yeah, it is. It is cool. I do have a, a question about about Potts' decision towards the end that I'd like to ask you. But first, I want to I want to get back to Grandpa Potts. You brought him up, and he, <laughs> I think he's probably my second or third favorite character in this, even though he's he's kind of a small role, but he's still right there in the background, and he's kind of making little comments like you were just describing. He is he he's the he's the quintessential grandpa in that he had the the regular job right like you said shining shoes in the army an honest living you know didn't didn't uh maybe didn't quite pursue his dreams but he he made he made the money and the and provided the living for his family that he that he needed to but in almost every scene that we see him he's going out to his little shed and he's describing <laughs> this this wonderful place that he's going to right he's going to alaska he's going to africa He's going to all these places. He dresses up like he's actually going there, right? And, you know, at first you kind of think, oh, he's just a crazy old man. But I think when you when you think about his son, what his son does, and how adventurous and inventive that his son is, I think that he gets that from Grandpa Potts. Because Grandpa Potts has an adventurous soul that he never got to live out. And it's only in these times of this crazy old grandpa going to a shed saying he's going to Alaska. It's only in those moments that we that we kind of see the side of him of he wants to travel. He wants to go to these great places that he never got to see in his life. Uh for whatever reason he felt like he never could. He wanted to he wanted to take the typical job and do the regular nine to five and provide for his family. But he still has that that spirit in him that wants to see the world, that wants to be an adventurer. And, uh, you know, it's like I said, it's just showing through those kind of quirky little moments where he goes into his little shed. But that's something I think we see rubs off onto his son, whereas his son, rather than just taking the regular nine to five, uh, is trying to kind of chase his dreams and 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 fulfill that desire to be inventive and uh, in his own life. So I think uh, Grandfather Potts is kind of a quirky old man, but I think there's there's a little bit to him there under the surface that we don't we we might uh, initially just sort of brush off. I, I love that he's a traveling spirit, and he 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 quote travels to all these these foreign lands, mm-hmm. and it's easy to see where the imagination of his son and his grandchildren come from, where it all originates. Oh yeah. Um, but then when he's kidnapped in the story, um, he gets the actual opportunity to travel and it, he sort of, he's anxious at first. He, he's shouting after Caractacus, Hey, come help me. Come save me. I'm being kidnapped by foreigners. But (laughs) then he starts singing a song called posh and it's the posh traveling life. Uh, he, he, he likes being an honored guest, whether he was kidnapped or not, he's traveling and he's in his own hut. He. Yeah. in a lot of ways is uh traveling first class because it's it's his it's him um and i i just i think that song is a lot of fun and it's cool that he gets a chance to uh 
shine and gets that chance to actually travel outside of his hut. Yeah. And then he's placed in a position where he has to try to invent something or create a flying car. And <laughs> so he, he's, he's just kind of in over his head then he got, he got his traveling and that was great. And it's, you know, he's, he's the posh life for him, <laughs> but, but now he's, he's being asked to actually perform something. And it's like, Oh, uh, who do you think I am here? <laughs> Once he gets to Bulgaria and he does get that, that taste of his son's life and the expectation of having to create something and failing a whole bunch of times, uh-huh. he actually starts to understand his son's viewpoint, I think. He was critical of him earlier and get your head out of the clouds, time to get to the real world, and now I'm off to Africa. Right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he he works with those elder inventors and they teach him, you know, failure is a part of eventual success um and it's cool that he gets to sort of see into the the life of his son and that might be part of caractacus telling the story is uh, let me put grandpa in a situation that is meant for me and see how he responds see if it's so easy for him uh yeah yeah, that's a good point that he's that he's uh, surrounded by those elder inventors in Bulgaria. So they're kind of like his peers, you know, and it takes a group of his peers to kind of help him realize the things that his son is going through. Whereas if his son were telling him these things, it, it would be much different. You know, his son doesn't know any better, that kind of stuff. But hearing it from someone who has had uh, similar or or well, similar life experiences that he's had maybe uh, means a little more to him. So that's that's a good observation there. Thanks. Um, now, what about Jeremy and Jemima themselves? They don't have a whole lot of necessary necessarily growth like the other characters do. But I've got to say, these kids could have gotten really obnoxious really fast. And I personally didn't feel like they ever got close to that threshold. I liked them. I thought they were sweet and non-selfish and... Uh, I really liked both of the kids. Yeah, they they didn't get obnoxious, um, but I don't know the, these kids. These these are the this is the only point of, of this movie that that I really didn't like is these kids. <laughs> oh, really? Know, maybe a little mean, but I I don't know. <laughs> they were they were annoying a couple times to me, and and I was just thinking, well, for example, the when they're on the beach. Uh, they take that trip with their father and with Truly to the beach, and they start singing that song to Truly uh, the, and telling her, you know, you're truly scrumptious. I, I Watching that the other night, I was kind of like, this is this is dumb. Why are they these two kids singing <laughs> to this woman who they just met like two days ago, telling her that they love her and basically that they want her to be their mom? It's 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 a little creepy and it's annoying and the way they just stand there and stare at her while they sing to her is like, no, thank you. Just delete this whole scene out of the film, please. <laughs> I, I understand. But when you name a character truly scrumptious, you got to work with that a little bit. <laughs> um, no, I mean, what I really like about the kids is that they 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 more than once show that they care more about their father's success than their personal endeavors. So they tell him about this car that's at Mr. Coggins' junkyard and that if he doesn't buy it, it's going to get melted in the fiery furnace. Mm -hmm. And so they go out and they try and sell these toot sweets. It goes south because dogs (laughs) and it's (laughs) unsuccessful. So uh, 
they are getting tucked into bed that night. And this is a scene where Caractica sings Hush by Mountain to them. He says, you know, that's an awful lot of money and any little money we do get goes to my inventions. And that's that's yeah. my livelihood. That's what we do. And so they they bring out these treasures that they've been saving. There's yeah. a, quote, ivory tusk and there's a, quote, crown and they're they're pieces of junk. But these kids value them because they're imaginative. Yeah. And in that moment, they say take these. These are our treasures. They're worth something to us, at least. And whatever money you get, don't worry about the car. Spend it on your inventions. And I think that's so sweet. They want their dad to be successful. Um, they're, they're happy at home. They're happy with him. And that's where I think their relationship with Truly comes in hand, is that they, they do want a mother. And one is basically served to them on a silver platter. And maybe the song's yeah. a little bit awkward, but she... <laughs> She treats them really well. She's very pretty. And it it's just sort of this children mindset, I think, where this is probably one of the the first like eligible bachelorettes they're interacting with, I would think. Um Yeah, probably. And they they have even this childhood fantasy of, you know, if they kiss, they're gonna have to get married. And that just becomes their their childhood hope. I mean, these are what, eight, seven years old kids? Yeah, uh, if probably. I had to guess, um, I, I like them a lot, and I especially love their relationship with their father. That opening song, the uh, uh, what is it? Um, I said it earlier. You too, or I have yeah, you, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, th- th- that that opening song, "You Too," is just the sweetest thing, and not in a sickening way either. I love that no. song. No, that's that's a very endearing song. Um, and the, the the one redeeming moment you mentioned it in, in that beach scene after they sing to truly is how they're kind of looking and, and watching her and their father interact and, and they kind of say have they kissed yet I say no and they say well just wait when they do then they have to get married <laughs> and that's a cute little scene just from the minds of little children and seeing how they think relationships work and it's just a cute little thing and and uh you know they the scene where you mentioned how they're offering these things that are treasures to them, to their father, to be able to uh, not buy them a car, but to provide for his own inventions. That is very endearing, and that's very sweet. And that goes to the relationship uh, in their family that already exists and that feels fully developed, even though we only have these couple of moments where we see signs of them kind of unselfishly loving one another. Um, it really feels fitting, you know, it feels like this is the family that completely works how it is, even though there are some pretty gaping holes in things that they need or want, uh, but they're, they're doing very well for the, as a family together and, and the love is clearly there. Um, I just really wish they'd get rid of that beach scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about truly herself? I think most of what I would say about Sally Ann Howes is truly, I've already said, I mean, she she is beautiful, both in face and mannerism. She's a lovely personality, but she she stands up for herself too. She is willing to speak her mind to Caractacus and tell him what she thinks of how he's raising his kids. And then when they go to the factory and he's trying to talk to her father about these sweets, she's pushy. Hey, go talk to him, follow him, do something. I mean, come on, try. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's nice that she's not just maiden on the side 
not involved in what's going on um, most of the time. You know, one thing that I noticed on on my most recent viewing of this, when we, I don't know if it's the first scene we have with her, but it's uh, the scene where um, the two children run out in front of her and she kind of has to pull off, swerve off into the little moat. She pulls off maybe 20 feet off in the, the moat and half her tires are, are in there. But she just puts it in reverse and backs out of there and gets out of there just <laughs> fine, right? Well, then, like, not 10 minutes later, uh, she is driving in one direction and Potts is driving in the other, and she has to make the same swerve into the same moat the same distance off the road. But this time she doesn't put it in reverse. She kind of turns around and says, well, now what do I do? That kind of thing. <laughs> so she, she's a, she's an, she's an independent woman in this film. She, she has her own uh, agenda, so to speak. She doesn't need, she doesn't need a guy to save her, but she wants a guy to save her, I think. And she wants a relationship with somebody that she can be with for the rest of her life. And I think she maybe kind of sees that a little bit in Potts at the beginning. Uh, if not, I don't know why she would ask him to save her from this moat that she just got herself out of 10 minutes earlier. You know what I mean? So I think there's there's a lot to her there. There's there's some depth there that, that uh, becomes apparent later on. Uh, and like you mentioned, in the, the scene where she is kind of pushing him forward to be a little more assertive, in trying to push his invention, uh, that that goes to her independent spirit as well. She is kind of telling him what to do. She's running the show there a little bit, and she's the one telling him he needs to be more forceful. He needs to be more, um, he needs to go for it, right? He, he don't just be a pushover or anything. So she's a she's kind of a driving force in in a lot of this movie, and you know, it's fair to say that she seeks out pots uh, as much, if not more so than he seeks her out. Yeah. I mean, she sings a whole song about how uh, her, her life now has a plan to someday make him see (laughs) Um, to, to, I've got the lyrics here to uh, that. I need him as much as he needs me. So, um, she, I didn't think of the second and third time driving into the the lake as her trying to sort of woo him, um, but I like that more than the idea of it being a sort of inconsistency. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I think that it's a smart way for her to get in the car with him, uh, whether it's to spend more time with Caractacus or probably initially to spend more time with the kids and make sure he's doing what he needs to do as a father, I would think. Right. And, you know, between those kids running out in front of her and the kids running out in front of uh, Chitty at the very beginning scenes where the, the car is winning all the races. If it weren't for a couple stinking kids running out in the road, this movie would never happen. <laughs> and I, I do want to mention, it's strange that they include that opening scene where we get the background of Chitty because it doesn't really matter unless they're trying uh, to that... say that the car has some sort of previous personality that would make it magical. So you could right. almost say that's an argument for the fact that maybe this isn't all story. Yeah. And and you want, you want the special traits of the car to be something that Caractacus added to it in his creation and his invention. And, you know, and the love of the family kind of rubbing off on the car, that sort of thing. And you don't necessarily want it to be just because the car is a really good 
race car with a strong engine, right? Mm -hmm. You want it to be something that sort of adds to the magical element of the movie. So, and like I said, that opening scene is really long and drawn out. And, you know, while I'm watching it with my kids, I'm wondering if they're going to fall asleep before it gets to any action. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you look at this movie's opening and then like West Side Story's opening, where they both have these on tracks, where uh, on track is wrong wrong word. That's beginning of the second act, I think. Uh, overtures. They have overtures, mm-hmm. and West Side Stories is these little lines slowly forming the New York skyline with the music. So mm-hmm. this is at least an improvement on that, in that you're watching something happen while you're getting that opening music. So who knows what the the real purpose was? I don't know if they were trying to hint towards anything about uh, Chitty's past, but whatever now oh go ahead well i could it could be and this is this is just kind of conjecture maybe but i know that uh, the motivation for ian fleming to even write this kind of story about a car uh the story is for his son uh casper uh but it's about this car because of his fascination with uh, race cars that he was seeing uh in the 1920s i believe um he was seeing these very same kind of race cars in these Grand Prix races and it kind of really, uh, really took hold in him as a, as a kid or as a young man. And I think that may be, uh, the, the reason for that opening, uh, those opening scenes is kind of Ian Fleming's, uh, inspiration for the story itself. Now there's two more characters that I don't think we could talk about this movie without talking about a little bit. The first is Baron Bomberst. <laughs> who uh, is little chuchi face <laughs> that is such a fun song uh yeah. gert froba this was my first experience with him I, I mean i've since seen him in uh james bond uh but he's a oh, cartoonish right, right. villain in all the right ways <laughs> it's <laughs> he is definitely an argument on the side of this is a story being told and not something that really happened just because of how cartoonish he is i think yeah, yeah. but <laughs> you, you he also has an element of believable evil to him too um and that weird quirk of liking toys so much i he's very childlike he's quick to anger and uh the the toy maker in vulgaria which by the way hilarious name for a country vulgaria <laughs> vulgaria right <laughs> um but uh, he he basically you know there's no children in Bulgaria allowed and still he has enough childlike tendency, tendencies of his own to replace the lack of childlikeness from actual children yeah talk about a villain that sigmund freud would have a field day with i mean this guy <laughs> is all over he hates kids he hates his wife even though he pretends to love her he loves toys like there's a lot going on there like some deep-seated problems with this guy but he's like you said he's a caricature of a villain if ever there was one he's got the he's got the long mustache the twirly kind of mustache every time every time something goes wrong he gives that all shocks arm you know swish or whatever uh it's he's a he's a fun villain he's the type of villain that you need to balance out the uber creepy kidnapper in the movie (laughs) he He's definitely, um, I don't know where I was going with that. Um, I, I love that his disdain for his wife is unexplained. It's just, yeah. uh, it's just that he hates his wife for some reason. And so we get these 
scenes where he's trying to inadvertently kill her um where like she's launched out of the back of chitty because grandpa doesn't know what he's doing and hits the wrong button and she slowly yeah (laughs) he loves it and she's slowly floating down because her skirt has inflated and he decides the the best way to get her down and maybe kill her if he's lucky is by taking his rifle and shooting at her and yeah he, and before he does he says I've, I, I've been waiting for this opportunity <laughs> and <laughs> like, that's holy cow what's happening here yeah I, I love that that's so funny and then the whole chuchi face number itself where they're they're dancing around and she's in love with him but he is trying to kill her every instance he gets he he tries to he leans her in front of a uh, coat of armor and uh nudges it at the right yeah. moment so that the axe drops but she gets out of the way in time then she's laying on the table and uh spike from the chandelier above the table falls and would have impaled her but she moves again out of the way right in time and then he opens a trap door that she falls into and he thinks he's finally done it and he starts singing his part of the song down the the hole and she enters the door from the other side of the room (laughs) he's just so put out it's just such a funny relationship and i love that there's not an explanation i don't want one i just think it's hilarious yeah, I mean, if you could have described that whole scene just the way you did, but taken away all of the laughter, and and you're describing an entirely different movie, then it is <laughs> right. it is amazing the balance that is struck with this character and how much he hates everyone, but he is still like this weirdly cartoonish and not understandable, but just kind of you can't hate the guy because he's so silly, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and then that leaves us with the character that I, the, the reason I timed this episode for this part of the year is because it's almost Halloween. And when you mention Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to most people, I think a lot of people's minds go to the child catcher. <laughs> and yeah. this very creepy, very disturbing character that traumatized a lot of children. This this is interesting. So explain this to me if you can. Did you have a really scary experience when you watched this as a kid with this child catcher? I didn't. And me neither. I I don't I, I mean I understand the discomfort people have with him, but I was never scared of him. In fact, I think I, w- I was more inclined to quote him as a kid. The the whole <laughs> lollipop scene, uh yeah. and kitty witty winkies or whatever. Uh I, I thought that was funny, not that the character himself was funny, but that that scene where he was all dressed up and uh, in disguise and trying to lure the kids out. And I don't know what that says about me, but I was well, never no, scared of him. You're exactly right, because watching it now and knowing that I wasn't scared of him when I saw this movie, but watching it now and trying to place myself in like a seven year old mindset, I'm like, why wasn't I terrified of this man who's kidnapping children and luring them in with candy? I should have been really scared. What the heck is wrong with me? <laughs> why, why am I finding enjoyment in this instead of just utter fear? <laughs> because so many people, like we said, this is like causing nightmares for them as children. And it's it's a very identifiable point in their movie-watching lives where they were totally scared by something that they saw as a kid. And where if you see it now, you know, an adult, it's... There's nothing particularly scary about it. He's kidnapping kids, but it's going along with <clears throat> with the cartoonish villain that we just discussed. This guy has a super long nose, and he's 
you know, he's he's going around in a in a in a horse and, and carriage with prison prison bars. It's kind of that doesn't seem like anything that necessarily should be too scary, but to a child, that should be really scary. And I'm just like wondering why I wasn't scared with scared at it. I did notice in this viewing that he's pretty sadistic. Like he he is relishing the thought of the toy maker possibly dying at the hand of the Baron. He says the, the Baron's mm-hmm. wife will wear your teeth as a necklace and your eyeballs as earrings. And he's looking forward to this. And then uh, the guy comes upstairs from the basement and says, Oh, they're not down here. And he get out of my way, you idiot. <laughs> and goes yeah. searching for him himself. But he's like excited about it. Um, not something I probably picked up as a kid, but how wonderful that this character that, scared so many children and kidnapped so many children within the film uh, is captured at the hands of children at the end. Yeah. It's, it's funny the turn that this movie takes because, you know, when the story begins, when Potts is telling the kids the story on the beach, you know, it's just, it's just these make believe beginnings of kind of the stories of a bond that a family is going through. And then it turns into like this child liberation movement and a complete disestablishment of a monarchy in this fanciful kingdom it's like immediate turn like that and it's just funny to to see that um that big shift like that out of just a pretty simple story of adventure and his children make their one stupid decision during that part of the film where they do that where they are lured out by the child catcher but in the thought of lollipops after truly i mean explicitly told him stay right here don't go anywhere. Yeah. Stay out of sight. Uh, and still, they're lured out. And that's maybe credence toward the fact that Caractacus is telling the story. And he is warning his children of disobeying adults. <laughs> or him and truly, at least. I don't know. It, it's it's uh, it's funny how this sort of seesaws back and forth where you could really make an argument either way, whether it's really happening or not. Yeah, yeah. And and if, if it's not really happening and it is just a story, then it, then it goes to like this idea of him describing these elements of him teaching his children and things he's not doing right. And clearly he nav- never gave them the don't take a candy, f- take candy from an adult speech. <laughs> clearly they missed that part of, of uh, child rearing. No, clearly this this movie is what started that argument. Don't take candy from strangers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, any other characters that you wanted to mention? Uh, I think we hit on all the major ones. There's there's a few few here and there. I mean, the toy maker is kind of a neat little character we could dissect a little bit, but I think we hit on hit on all the major ones. Yeah, we've got Benny Hill as the toy maker. We've got Anna Quayle as the Baroness. Uh, the two spies that are trying to capture the car are very wily Coyote esque, and yeah. it's a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, we hit the bulk of them. Now let's talk a little bit about the music a little bit more. We, we've dropped here and there what we like, what we don't like, but uh, what do you have to say about the Sherman Brothers music here? Really catchy. I mean, when you're a kid and you hear that Chitty Bang Bang song and it just hits that hits that beat and gets to that repetitive chorus, it's like it's like spoon feeding. You know, something you're going to be stuck on for weeks and weeks, just singing it in your head. And I think that's something as you listed off the Sherman Brothers. Uh, kind of filmography there, movies they've been involved with. Every one of those movies you listed, you can think of the main song or one of the main songs. And it's just something that can easily get stuck in your head. And that's definitely accomplished with uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. 
Um, that's probably for me the standout musical moment. Uh, the other one that I really enjoyed watching, um, maybe not necessarily listening to as much, but more watching in the film was probably the Toot Sweets song. Um, I really liked the interaction of the huge cast involved in that musical number. That was a lot of fun. Um, I love you know, the, there's, I love the lyrics of Toot Sweets. The uh, the bonbon you blow on. <laughs> the whistle you eat, and it, uh, th- there's just a lot of funny, clever lyrics in Toot yeah. Sweets. Yeah, there are. It, it, it's, it's, very, it's a very smart song, kind of, uh, just rhyming everything together and making words have double meaning with, on each side of, of a verse. Uh, really smart song, I think. And it's, I'll say it again, that whole musical number just goes towards cementing Dick Van Dyke and, like, the best athlete actor you know award uh he's really doing a lot there he's he's going up and down stairs this is the guy that's 42 years old at the time i believe and while that's not really old that's not you know a young spry man anymore 42 years old i'm 35 i don't think i could pull off half the moves that he's doing <laughs> in this he's in excellent shape uh he's pulling off all these dance moves um I don't know. There's probably a handful of actors in Hollywood today that could do it. I kind of liken him after you see La La Land with Ryan Gosling um, and you think he's doing a good job in the dance numbers in that movie. Just watch Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and kind of get get your center back a little bit. I don't remember where I heard it or read it. It might have been actually on the special features for the Blu-ray or something. But I think that Dick Van Dyke said Me All Bamboo was the hardest dance number he ever had to do. Um I believe I, it. Yeah, I, I'd have to verify that somewhere. So don't don't take my word for it. But I I think that's the case. But uh, as for the Sherman Brothers songs themselves, I love the main theme song. Um, the first time we hear it outside of the overture is when the the we first see Chitty itself fully restored by mm-hmm. Caractacus, and it exits the barn, and we get the the brief moment of the the theme, and then it actually mashes up with you two. Um, the song that he sang with his kids. So oh, it yeah. really intertwines the car with his kids, which I think is awesome. And that happens one more time as they're following grandpa over the ocean. Um, and what's telling about that, I suppose, is that the kids are asleep at the moment where that's heard. And so it's Caractacus and truly talking to each other and gives a different meaning to you too, I suppose. Yeah, it does. And you know, when he's building Chitty, uh, there are, uh, there are, the the music of U2 and Hushabye Mountain, mm-hmm. both songs that he's singing exclusively to his children. That's the music is playing in the background as he's build, building Chitty. So that goes to serve as, you know, like we mentioned before, the motivation for why he's building Chitty is just for his children. And those songs help us kind of remember that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, every every single song, I think, has the Sherman Brothers charm that you would expect. There's really mm-hmm. not a dud in the bunch, although Lovely Lonely Man is a bit slow. It was the song that I <laughs> skipped as a kid. And uh, even tonight, it was a little bit slow for my taste, but it was it's fine. I, I like it. And the rest of them really stand out. I mean, Two Sweets and the main theme are probably my favorites, but I adore U2 and Hush by Mountain. Both times we hear it. And then Chuchi Face and Roses of Success are just hysterical. Uh, I think I could watch the Chuchi Face number <laughs> over and over. It's it's so great. So I agree. Great. <laughs> you know the um, 
to get back to what well, you were you mentioned the name of the song that um truly sings um kind of on her own what was the name of that lovely lonely man lovely lonely man so when she when she is singing that she's really belting it out this is something uh we had talked before about but she's really belting it out and she's really showing her pipes, right? She can sing like nobody's business. Um, originally, this was a role that was kind of uh, offered up to Julie Andrews as a follow-up to Mary Poppins to get, you know, Van Dyke and Julie Andrews back together again. Um, but she turned it down because it was too similar to the Mary Poppins role. So, so truly was given to uh, Julianne Howes, I think, I think was her name. Sally Ann Howes. And, Sally and Howes, my apologies. And I don't know, I have to believe that Julie Andrews would have handled another scene a little better. There's a scene where uh, her and Nick Van Dyke are singing to uh, a boy, one of the orphan boys in Bulgaria, who's kind of hiding away underneath the castle, you know, 200 feet underneath the castle in, in sort of these caves. And there's Potts starts to sing Hushabye Mountain to him to try to calm him down a little bit and soothe him and try to reassure him that everything's going to be okay. And Truly comes in and joins in with him and singing this to him. And they're kind of, you know, singing him as a, as a mother and father figure to all these kids. But when she begins singing to him, it is still this very booming kind of a voice, this, this very opera style singing. Uh, in a moment that should have been much more somber and much more reserved, you know, she, that's a moment where she needs to dial it back a lot. And it, so, if I if I have a complaint about her as an actress in the movie, it is in that moment that she needs to kind of restrain her ability there to sing this, sing the crap out of the song. But you don't need to right there. You just need to let the words speak and not let your voice necessarily be heard so much. Um, and I don't know if Julie Andrews would have done that better uh, i think she probably would have but uh that may just be because i'm thinking about how well she handled the mary poppins role um but that was that's kind of the one critique i have uh for this actress in, in the film yeah. um I mean, she's an excellent singer though yeah that's what i was about to say to be clear she is a, she has a beautiful voice but it yes. might just be a, a bit much in those couple of scenes yeah um and then just the score itself um I I love when the songwriters write the score as well because they into they they are able to integrate the music the music that they wrote, uh, the way that they want to integrate it, rather mm -hmm. than somebody writing the songs and then a separate composer coming in and thinking oh that theme sort of works here and it might not be thematically correct as far as like the the lyrics and the application but anyways, um, the score is great and we get additional score for the the two Vulgarian spies. Uh, they have like their own sort of frantic, almost 1930s, 40s cartoon. Yeah, Looney Tunes-y is what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah, and then the Vulgarian national anthem itself, the bum, 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 bum. It's just cool that they get their own theme that's used a few times. And uh, there's that dark rendition of Chichi Face uh, as everybody's dancing at the Baron's birthday party. And everybody's right. got like this grim right. look on their face. It, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, the pairings, if you notice in, the, in that dance, the pairings of all the people is also just very strange. You have this you know, enormously tall man and these, this short little woman and this... And this beautiful woman and this really crotchety looking old man paired all these <laughs> pairings of people dancing just really adds to the creepiness of that song, I think. 
Now, what about the takeaways, the relevance of the film? What What are some of your, uh, what, what what do you get from this film? I think, you know, we talked a little bit about fatherhood, and I think there's a lot to be discussed there. But I think, I think the one of the things that I take away, and and I'm probably bringing some of my own bias into this. Um, but one of the things that I take away is the importance of a mother and a father to raising children, uh, the impact that they have on children, how they're able to approach children, the things that they can teach children. A mother and a father are going to handle things very differently. Um, you can see in the children in this film a desire to have a female figure in their lives, uh, to be their mother figure, even if it's not their their biological mother, they're wanting someone to be there for them, to love them as only a mother can. And I think that's a that's a theme that runs throughout. It's kind of the, the driving force behind wanting to get truly and pots together. Uh, one of the reasons is the children want it to happen, and they're kind of pushing it in that direction. Um, so the the benefits of a mother and a father for raising children and also the benefits of of a mother and father relationship together, um, leaning on one another, relying on one another, pushing one another as truly pushes pots, uh, as pots kind of is there for truly uh, in the moments that she needs him. Those are some themes, I think, that kind of go toward the traditional family idea. And not that you can't raise children, you know, with only a mother or only a father, that it can't be done or anything, or not that you can't live a satisfying life without a husband or a wife, but there's an element to that arrangement of a family that I think is is beneficial that other arrangements can't quite match. You know what I mean? Can't yeah. quite get get there to what a father means to children, what a mother means to children, and what a husband and wife mean to each other within that family context. That's one. That's one takeaway. I think, um, especially now as an adult, um, you know, when I'm a kid, the only takeaway is that I shouldn't take candy from strangers. But, <laughs> but, but now, you know, hitting on these family relationship dynamics, I think is is a pretty valuable takeaway. Yeah, and it, to emphasize, these kids are fine with their father and their grandfather. They they live happy lives. They're loving. They're respectful. Um, maybe a little unruly, but. They're, they're, they're okay. They're kids, right? And that they they would have been able to continue on without a mother or a mother figure, but truly is sort of a missing link. It's like, oh, I didn't realize what I was missing until I had it, and now my life is the better mm -hmm. for it. And it's likewise with Caractacus and that that relationship of having a a wife to help to care for his kids with. So I like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And one for me was just the, the benefits of imagination. I think that in telling the story about a land, about a land where children are banned, it's, it's sort of a metaphor that Caractacus is setting up for the stifling of imagination. He feels like his imagination is trying to be stifled a little bit because of his lack of success, because of the expectation his father is trying to set on him for uh, mm -hmm. getting a real job and hanging up his tools. Um, 
so he tells a story about a land where children are banned and they're locked up and they're having to scavenge in the darkness in sewers and uh, they're released at the end of it. Your 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 childhood is free. Your imagination is free. We see his success starts to turn around because of his inventions and his imagination in creating them. Mm-hmm. Chitty is a product of his children's imagination first because they're the ones who find it in the junkyard and become so attached to it. But then it it's something that he creates in his workshop to appease the imagination of his kids. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of pro-imagination discussion and uh, events that are taking place in this film. And sort of, oh, did you have something to say about that? Uh. I, I did have a question that I want to ask about Pot's decision, but it goes goes towards a kind of a different theme. So so continue on your thought there. <laughs> okay. And to sort of tie in with that is just the idea of perseverance and hope and the importance of those as well. And yeah. not letting failure stifle your creativity or your drive to succeed. Um, a, a lyric from The Roses of Success is, with every mistake you make, be grateful that mistake you'll never make again. So the the notion of hmm. making mistakes, learning from them, uh, continuing to make more mistakes, learning from those, and it's almost a process of elimination. Like, here are all the ways to do it wrong, and I've gotten past those, so now it's eventually going to be the time to do it right. You know, you get right. the, the Thomas Edison quote, uh, there were a thousand ways or whatever the number was not to make a light bulb. He only needed the one to make it work. Uh, same thing. And th- that's in the Roses of Success song. That's in uh, Caractacus's inventions themselves and how eventually he hits gold and is going to be rich by the end of the movie because his toot sweets, whether they were an accident or not, were a product of his imagination and a product of his perseverance. And yeah. uh, his life's going to change because of it. So I, I think the-, the film makes a strong case for both imagination and perseverance. Yeah, I totally agree. Good, excellent points there. Um, that and that last point you make, where he's now getting ready to strike it rich, goes towards the question I have that I think it can be kind of a character analysis, but also towards this idea of what's the relevance and what are the themes of what kind of message is this leaving, and that is this. So, at the end of the movie, uh, Potts and Truly come to this point where they kind of both recognize that. They want to be together, but Potts does something that I don't think necessarily the audience expects. He kind of shuts her out. He describes how she is successful, and and uh, they they just aren't a good match. And uh, she kind of gets angry with him and 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 leaves, understandably, and he leaves as well. And then he gets home with his kids, and and lo and behold, um, Truly's father, the the sweet toots guy, is there. And he offers him this this bag of money, basically, for his invention of the two sweets. Uh, you know, he's going to market it for a, a dog treat, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it worked for him. You know, he's going to be rich now. So, so here's the here's the the concern I have. After he learns he's going to be rich, he turns around, he goes back to Truly, and he gets her back, essentially saying, "I'm going to be rich now." Now we can be together. So two questions that I'd be interested in, in what your thoughts are. Number one, is that consistent with the character? Does that make sense at all from a character perspective? And number two, 
is that sending what kind of message is that sending um and as far as you know we've been talking about chasing your dreams uh uh not not turning away from from what you want and kind of going for it and learning from mistakes what kind of message is that sending that it wasn't until he learned he'd be rich where he felt like he could really pursue this woman who maybe he's out of her league or she's out of his league what do you think well, to answer your second question first, it was something that I was struggling a little bit with while watching too, because it's sort of the grease ending, right? Where if mm. you want to get your man, you have to change to get to 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 be what he wants you to be. Uh, yeah, I, like I don't like the ending of Grease. That's a different discussion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's sort of the same thing here, right? Where it's not until he realizes that he is going to be rich that he goes and tries to apologize and. Uh, make amends and pursue that relationship with Truly. Now, the way I've sort of justified it in my head is that he rushes off before signing this contract. Um, so it's not necessarily about the money in the moment. I think it's more about the success. And so his hangups, though he was trying to pass him off as a class issue, you live in this big house, you have all this money, and I'm way opposite of that. Uh-huh. And it was more about his failures rather than the money issue. And he saw himself as a failure and somebody who maybe couldn't be everything that she would want him to be because he's a failure. But when her father shows up and is offering this contract and his life is going to turn around, it's not because of the money that he changes his mind. It's because, wow, something I created is now a success. And so it's almost a self-affirming thing where he says, you know, maybe I'm not so much of a failure after all. And I was being stupid about it. So instead of signing this contract real quick, I'm going to go pursue what's more important first. Does that make sense? That does. Um, So would you say that he feels like then that he deserves her after that moment or or he kind of wakes up to the fact that he deserves her? Yeah, I think his self-doubt goes largely away because it wasn't the only moment in the film where he was feeling self-doubt. I mean, he'd been expressing it on and off throughout, especially at the beginning before he got to Chitty. Yeah. But uh, so whether it's in character or not, I don't know. And maybe that's a bit of an over justification. Me trying to uh, make a movie that I'm super fond of from my childhood work now that I'm an adult. I don't know. But that that's just sort of what has gone through my head in watching that. Because I had that same hang up where it was like, it's not about the money, though. But that that seems to make sense to my head. And I don't feel like I'm stretching things too much. No, I don't think that's a stretch. Um and I'd I'd be inclined to agree with that. I don't I don't think that's a stretch at all. I think, from a character perspective, I think that does make sense that he turns her away because, you know, he's he's a practical guy. He's an engineer, and and things for engineers they need to work together. You know, like a machine would work together. Things in your life need to kind of align and work together as well. Things need to be in order and make sense. And so the pairing of of him, a scrappy kind of salt of the earth sort of country boy engineer, uh, with this high class, wealthy daddy's girl, doesn't really make a lot of sense to him, despite their feelings for each other, which are clearly there. Um, and I think to go to your point of feeling worthy or feeling like um, he's deserving of her, he's grown accustomed to failure and disappointment with all of his inventions, and. You know, none of them of them have come through, and he doesn't want to get himself and his children into something that he sees as another potential failure waiting to happen. 
So he's kind of uh, perpetuating his experiences that he's had with his inventions and with his livelihood onto other aspects of his life, his relationships, and thinking that if he is failing at all these things that he's putting his mind to, why wouldn't he also then fail at something that he's putting his heart into? And, and you know, I think you may be right. I mean, it takes that, it takes that moment of affirmation um, where something that he created does actually work and is useful and somebody really wants for him to kind of realize the fact that um, uh, he he's he's worthy, I guess. Uh, he, de- he deserves to be happy and he doesn't need to be fearful of kind of going for it. Um, I think that, I think that's a reasonable explanation. Um, although, you know, on, on first watch or on my most recent watch, again, I had the same thought as, as you kind of did initially, like, this is just a money thing. It's it's about class, and it's kind of it's kind of the opposite of the message we've been hearing the whole movie. Um, so it's it it rubbed me a little bit wrong, and it's not it's something that I think you would have to really get into uh, describing his his motives for it as you did. Um, but I think yeah, I think maybe there's some explanation there. And I think too, just to sort of sum up he doesn't want to do anything that might disappoint his kids either. So jumping into a relationship with this woman, he's known for a day, two days and then things going South, whether it's because of his failures or whether it's because of the money or whatever else. And then having his kids get further attached to truly than they already are. I mean, as you mentioned, they already sang this song about how truly scrumptious she is and how they want her to be uh, their mom. But uh, he, he doesn't want them to get, too attached now in case something does go south and it doesn't work out. So he doesn't yeah, want to disappoint line, his kids. Yeah, there's a line in the song that she sang um, that that goes towards kind of helping your point that um, she wants him to realize that she needs him as much as he needs her. Right. And that's not something he can see in that moment. Um, and maybe that's never not something he even learns until the relationship grows and grows. But the fact that she does want him despite any class or wealth differences um, is something that she wants him to understand. And so I think I can go towards kind of proving your case there. Well, cool. Um, Any other final points to make before we close off? No, I mean, we hit on a lot of this. Um, (laughs) We did. (laughs) This this is, this is a fun movie i think if if you can get your kids past the the opening scene of just a lot of uh race cars going down the tracks you know there's some cool wrecks there maybe that'll keep their attention but if you can get them through that then i think uh, they'll they'll quickly be hooked it's an excellent movie to show your seven eight nine year old kids um it's a lot of fun a lot of opportunities to sing along and um Invi- invite your imagination to get involved in the story. So I, I would recommend this movie for pretty much anybody. I would too. Um, not only because it's a favorite from my childhood, because but because even now I'm, I have a lot of fun watching it and I had a lot of fun talking about it uh, for yeah. more than an hour. I don't know if I expected this episode to run so long, but I'm not mad about it. <laughs> well, I can get pretty long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, well, I think that wraps up. That is the end of the official 63rd episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, Gene, for coming back. Thank you for having me. 
Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts on your phone or other iDevice. If you have feedback or ideas, you can email the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that email address or any of our other social media to contact regarding hosting. If you have a movie that you love, think you could talk about it for a bit, let me know, and we will try and get you on the show sometime. Now, Gene, where can people find you online? You can check me out at clearlens.org, specifically the podcast page on that website, uh, realworldtheology.com. And that's real with two E's, by the way. Uh, if you join the Facebook page for Real World Theology, you're going to find me in there a lot. There's a lot of great interaction, great discussion. I'm always having fun with everybody in there. So uh, those are the primary places you can find me. I'm on Twitter, too, at Wizard of Gaz, Wizard with no A. Okay, the best place to find me is at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And don't forget about my other show, An American Workplace, where we watch through every episode of The Office. Uh, This next week, we are finishing up season two and getting started on season three. And you can find that where podcasts can be found and at the website workplacepodcast.com. And all the show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thanks, Gene, again for coming onto the show again. I was glad to talk about this childhood favorite. Me too, Chad. Thanks a lot for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 63. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 64. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 